breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? John Deere to New Holland. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown. Backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Cause I'm a working man. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. Presented by Fast Line Media Group. Your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us on this week's episode. Outgoing USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue reflects on his time in office, and we introduce a new weekly market recap with veteran farm broadcaster Jesse Allen. Our buddy, the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax, has another installment of Bushels and Scents, and we hear from Americana singer-songwriter Sean Harrison, who has a great new album out. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, a few weeks back, outgoing USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue spoke to a virtual gathering of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters to share his thoughts about his time at the helm of the USDA. The discussion was moderated by 2020 NAFB President Rita Frazier of Illinois' RFD Radio. Secretary Perdue, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to visit with the NAFB. Your commitment to agriculture and the folks who tell the story of agriculture across the airwaves uh, is very appreciated, especially in a year like 2020. If you don't mind jumping right into your help for farmers, uh, aid money to farmers through MFP and and other programs. Farmers have long said that they would prefer to have open trade lines rather than government assistance programs, but wouldn't it have been easier to resolve trade disputes rather than expend government funds on assistance programs? Well, good morning, Rita, and uh, good morning to all of you folks. I want to thank you, first of all, before we begin answering the question, because uh, you are the communicators. You all take uh, the news out of USDA and uh, and Washington here and communicate it to those folks on the ground and uh, in a very reliable way. So I've, I've appreciated the relationship I've had with the uh, farm broadcasters across the country. And I wanna thank you for the part that you all play in, uh, in communication and getting information out to them. Obviously, uh, uh, trade and, uh, and support is very important. Uh, while it is absolutely true, there's not an honest farmer in America that would rather not have a, a good crop at a fair price than a government check. Uh, the fact is, when you don't have a good crop at a fair price, you need a government check. And that's what's happened over the last four years. I think it's interesting, Rita. Uh, it's almost like uh, we don't feel like we've been as successful as we have. But the factual numbers show economically that farm income minus government payments has increased uh, 33% over the last four years. I think a lot of times while the President Trump supported that when we were having the uh, calling out China and uh, many people wanted to talk about the trade war uh, actually going on there, we'd been in a war that we weren't in, we didn't realize we were in for 20 years. I think President Trump called that out and uh, now we see the benefits of the trade policy. So sometimes there has to be some pain. Obviously, these transfer payments were there with MFPs one and two, uh, CFAP one and two with COVID. 
uh, to help support people where they could continue their livelihood uh, and not get so much in debt that they couldn't get out in that way during these period of times. And the good news is now we're seeing those prices and the, that we had hoped to have seen uh, four years ago. Actually, when you look at farm income, I was kind of surprised myself to see it literally bottomed in 16 and has risen each year, every every year since that period of time. In fact, in this, this crop year in 2020, which has been strange in a number of ways, it's predicted that uh, uh, it will be, farm income will be above the 20 year average there. So it really takes some of both. And I think uh, that's, the, uh, that's the benefit that we've seen. And now I think we're seeing trade policies result in prices that can be uh, very sustainable for our farm communities. You kind of reference it going on about trade and we'll talk about other countries, but with China, how do you square wins versus losses with that relationship? Uh, I think when you look at the numbers this year, uh, President Trump, all of us knew that there would be some short-term pain in the fact of uh, when you put tariffs on crops. And I think there was a lot more conversation about that uh, than, uh, than actual uh, pain engaged, but we made us feel bad about that. We felt like it came at a bad time when that slump from when, it, uh, when prices uh, uh, peaked in 12 and 13 and kept coming down all the way to 16 there. And then on top of that, we thought we were losing markets. But anytime when you have are being mistreated, there has to be some temporary uh, changes there. And that's why President Trump authorized and we provided through the CCC, the market facilitation programs one and two, both in 18 and 19, there to get us through that period of time to make up for that in that way. Farmers don't feel good emotionally. Uh, like I said, you'd rather have that uh, check come across the scales rather than the mailbox. We understand that, but nonetheless, it kept, and we've got anecdotes of galore uh, from many farmers that have been uh, uh, extremely grateful about the fact that that kept them solvent during this period of time where they can have better prices. What about success uh, with, with other countries? Uh, again, uh, the phase one deal with China obviously is ongoing. Will they meet those numbers this year or not? We don't know, but uh, they're continuing to buy record numbers in, in corn, uh, beans, pork, uh, beef, uh, poultry even, and uh, they haven't gotten into the ethanol energy sector like we would do. But then on the top of that, you've got the USMCA. Uh, this was an agreement that had been done uh, 25 years ago, and we were somewhat concerned when the president talked about withdrawing from NAFTA, but when we visited with him, he gave us the opportunity to get a better deal, and I think we have in many respects. We've modernized it from a technology perspective and uh, solidified those number one and two customers there on the northern southern border uh, for a long time, and we'll continue. The, the main thing about that, Rita, is uh, Bob Lighthizer, a trade ambassador, got an enforceable agreement. If, if Canada now wants to go around and circumvent that agreement uh, with its class seven milk or those kind of things, we've got the ability to, to go and to, uh, to sue them with very enforceable agreements. So that's the main thing. No longer will we just kind of sit back and take what other people do to us, but we've got uh, legitimate areas of, of concern. The USMCA was a big win. Uh, the Japan agreement was uh, again, uh, there was concern about withdrawing from TPP, but why should the largest customer of these countries uh, be treated the same as 11 other countries of very minor types of things? So 
we got a, a better deal that way. The Korean deal was uh, settled as well, as, as well as uh, uh, in the Indo-Pacific from Thailand and Vietnam and others have also increased. So I think, I think we've laid the platform for increased trade. I, I frankly, uh, I'm not a market guru, but I think you see uh, the prices being reflected are reflecting that this fall, uh, you know, going forward. So I think, uh, I think we have reset the trading paradigm for, uh, for the future. Let's go on to rural broadband and success there. Can you talk about the importance of broadband access for farmers and, and rural areas in this country? It's vital. I mean, it is, uh, uh, it's no longer a luxury. Uh, when we began President Trump the day after I was sworn in, uh, signed the executive order on uh, rural prosperity. And as we studied that for 180 days with a, a interagency, about 22 different federal agencies, uh, connectivity is one of the main things that we came up with that could really help rural America, including farms and farmsteads. It's no longer uh, acceptable for 20% uh, of, the, of the nation here to be cut out of connectivity of electronic commerce. That's just not acceptable. And uh, these reconnect programs that uh, the president has directed us and Congress funded to get uh, uh, to get these uh, connectivity out here with broadband uh, to literally to the farmsteads, precision agriculture, e-commerce. Farmers are great entrepreneurs. They can market themselves all over the world if they have connections. Connections certainly. COVID has shown us uh, with uh, distance learning. What are the what are the country kids going to do when school's not in? How are they going to learn if they can't be connected? Telehealth, those kind of issues. So. Uh, Precision agriculture, we believe there are literally uh, uh, things coming along with the 5G and others that uh, we can't even imagine right now that will make our farm communities and our farmers much more productive uh, than they can even imagine even now. Let's, you mentioned COVID-19. Let, let's talk about that and uh, how you worked with the country, with processors to, to keep the food moving, to keep the nation moving. Once again, uh, it was rather anxious back in the spring as we saw the infection uh, uh, ravaging our processing employees. Uh, uh, you had a dual threat, obviously, keeping employees safe. Uh, you know that any processing plant in the protein sector is typically uh, side by side and very close and juxtaposition with one another. So they had to make uh, serious and quick arrangements in that way. And in the meantime, we saw we were tracking our production of uh, protein, both in the beef, poultry, and pork section, and we saw it easing down. And I kept asking, are we heading for a cliff or not? And yes, we did fall off a cliff very temporarily, but the good news was in working with uh, our, our public health officials, working with CDC, working with the Department of Labor through our occupational self, uh, safety and health organizations, as well as the president uh, finally issuing an executive order uh, in indicating how important this was with the Defense, Defense Production Act. We had a lot of local areas there that had different ideas about what should be done. In fact, some states, they wanted to shut down processing for 14 days. And uh, can you imagine the panic that would have existed in the, in, the, in the American consumer out here if they went and there was no meat in the case at all? We did see limitations in various places and a lack of choices, but for the most part, uh, we were able to avoid a total empty case 
uh, in most areas, most of the areas that way. And I give credit to the companies who worked and really spent a lot of money uh, trying to protect their employees while continuing to do a very essential job of the food supply chain. We all learn a lot more about the food supply chain than I think any of us ever thought about. Uh, and I did as well. Uh, I didn't realize we were probably consuming over half of our calories and nutrition outside of the home. We had a very efficient food supply chain that was set up to supply the uh, food service industry, restaurants, hotels, conventions, colleges, schools that way, and they could not easily pivot to make consumer products. If you're dealing with a 400 pound block of cheese, your homeowner's not gonna go in a grocery store and buy a 400 pound block of cheese, and they did not have the processing equipment to make consumer packaging. So we had to work in that way. But uh, I think the Defense Production Act enabled us, gave us the power, although we never had to implement that. We never had to execute the Defense Production Act, but it gave everyone an idea of how serious it was and how we all needed to work together. And the good news was the V bottom, it fell off of a cliff, but it kind of climbed back up very quickly as we tracked day by day on the production back up to 94, 95, and now 100 plus percent uh, uh, prior to COVID. So this was a, uh, a very anxious time, and I'm very proud of our food supply chain, our growers. You know that our farmers were backed up with uh, uh, hogs and other animals that couldn't be processed. We had to uh, depopulate some poultry as well, but uh, everyone worked through it just like we always do in American agriculture, and uh, I think we'll be stronger for it. Well, so we all learned a tremendous amount. You guys learned a, a, a ton about uh, this process. Were there changes or mitigations put in place that will uh, take us through or avoid another situation like we were faced with back in March? I think so. We, we've gotten more resilience built into uh, that. I think, again, yeah. what you will probably see is uh, more automation, uh, certainly in processing. That's, uh, that's certainly true. Uh, more, more worker safety. Uh, you know, who could have anticipated a pandemic of this kind? I think uh, the Spanish flu of, you know, 2009 or 1918, 100 years ago, uh, this is just not something you prepare for. Many people uh, like to blame people in power or, or an authority and this kind of thing, but these were, these were very different uh, times. I'm, I think, again, America, the United States, even though we've had unfortunate deaths and infections. I think, uh, frankly, the whole country, I'm just not talking about the government, America as a whole has shown a resilience to this, uh, uh, this pandemic in an amazing way. I'm really proud of farmers never stop. They never stop planting, they never stopped harvesting. They never stopped there. They kept on doing what they needed to do because uh, when you think about essentiality, uh, growers are pretty essential. For sure. You kind of referenced school-aged children. Can you talk about how USDA, how you connected with those school-aged children and now, you know, now more than ever before, that connection between, you know, food and school children and farmers? Yeah, one of the things that uh, uh, we did, obviously, was to give uh, some flexibility. We heard a lot from our school nutrition professionals, uh, really regarding some of the rules they were under. Uh, it was a huge uh, 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 awesome rubrics cube they had to match within the confines of their budget and the flexibility they were asked to do. 
The other thing that we, we realized that school children were feeding the garbage can. They weren't feeding themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you're concerned about nutrition for kids, you've got to also make that food palatable in a way that they will consume it. We've seen a, a wonderful uptick in uh, utilization, both in number of kids eating and participating in school meals, as well as uh, uh, the palatability of consuming that food uh, as well. Uh, you also know during the COVID, that was a crisis as well. Kids being sent home, many of them, that's the nutrition that they were depending on at school breakfasts and lunches. And I just want to thank again, our food nutrition people here at USDA. They did thousands of waivers there in order to get these school kids fed, not only during that time when they left school early in the spring, but through the summer and the fall, and now through the end of next school year. This has been a tremendous effort in getting, uh, keeping these kids fed. Uh, It's amazing, it's astonishing really, to realize how much America's school children depend on uh, this nutrition for their for their weekly daily nutrition needs for sure let's go on to uh, reducing regulations under this administration uh, the Trump administration scored significant wins with farmers and, and ag groups when it repealed the controversial wellness rule do you believe the the rule will face challenges under this new administration well I don't I can't predict what will happen obviously it was a great victory for American agriculture you know it was the top issue from American Farm Bureau Federation. Many farm groups have come together to advocate it. Uh, I viewed it, frankly, as uh, overly restrictive in a confiscatory type of way. It would have limited uh, the ability of farmers uh, who are very compliant and very, uh, uh, very willing to apply by environmental regulations, but it would limit their ability and then their ability to make a living in many ways. So I think the repeal uh, the waters of the U.S. or the, or really the, not repeal, but making it a, a much more uh, amenable type of uh, regulation that farmers can uh, comply with without losing their ability that way. So I don't think we uh, uh, farmers, I, I truly believe, are environmentalists. I think they want to do things. We're continually talking about water quality and nutrient runoff and doing things with our NRCS to, to better that. So I think we've left it better what will happen in the future. There are other regulations there that, uh, uh, and again, you've got to think about E15. There was a huge cry in the, in the corn growing region over year round E15. Those things were accomplished, making it easier in that way to, uh, for consumers to have access to uh, uh, ethanol fuel in a way that I believe uh, helps the environment as well as helps our agricultural producers. So much uh, to, to summarize in your time as secretary. Can you pick out what you're proudest of uh, during your role as secretary of Ag? Well, those are those are hard to do. I'm not a one focus kind of guy. What uh, what what I said when we came in, Rita, was we want to be the uh, the most efficient, the most effective, the most customer focused uh, agency in the federal government, and I believe we've strived to do that. I think if you ask farmers up and down the line if we've been accessible, if we've been available, if we've been transparent, I believe we'd get a pretty good score on that. I think, uh, I think many of them have indicated that anecdotally to us. Uh, we're, we're doing a farmers.gov access. We just announced this week, uh, ask USDA. We want farmers to have connectivity rather than getting in this uh, vortex of death of IVRs and phones and things like that. You know, in your business, 
communication is important. We want to be able to communicate directly to farmers and have them feedback directly to us. So this uh, uh, bilateral feedback loop we've got with farmers.gov and ask USDA, I think will be a huge uh, uh, promotion going forward that will enable them to, to feel part of what's happening here, not just like takers, but participators in the process of decision-making. So those are the kind of things when you talk about uh, uh, really efficiency, effectiveness, and customer focus, I think we've moved the ball on that. Uh, we've tried to be uh, data-driven, uh, science-based uh, uh, deciders, and I think we've uh, I think we've used science and data to do that. We've created some dashboards here in USDA that's amazing, used all the way from the Forest Service to FPAC to uh, uh, to food science, food service, and uh, other things. So we've got a platform here where people are able to. Uh, to make data-driven, facts-based decisions, scientific-based decisions, rather on rather than ideology. Sometimes we use uh, uh, we use uh, political science rather than a biological science to make decisions. We've given people, we've got our career people, the tools now they need to make data-driven, facts-based, scientific decisions. Let's talk about the future. You spent a lot of time on the road. You crisscrossed the country countless times, and you had an opportunity to interact with young ag students, 4-Hers, FFAers. What did you take from that? Well, I take from it that I'm, I'm confident. I'm, I'm more confident of the future of agriculture than I ever have been. It's been an honor of a lifetime to be able to visit. Uh, you know, I'm from Georgia in one corner of the country, uh, and a lifetime there, although I lived in Ohio and North Carolina for a short period of time. But uh, what I saw across the country, north, south, east, west, was uh, a heart and a spirit that embodied that American spirit that built this country. And that's what thrills me. I not only saw it in the, in the older farm generation, I saw it in the young people with a future of technology and, and, a, and an understanding of how uh, technology can make us go even further to feed this world hungry. The world is depending on the United States of America. When we see what's happening and proposed in Europe is the farm to fork and going backward rather than forward, it's the young people of America who are gonna create uh, the, the methods to feed us, uh, whether uh, whatever method that is. Consumers will ultimately determine what it is uh, about what they want and how they want. I think the transparency that young people bring to the process. Our, my generation of farmers, we were just trained to stay behind the farm gate and just do a good job and not talk about it. We cannot no longer afford to do that. We've got to talk about what we're doing, how we're doing, how we're growing the food, what's in it, how, why it's nutritious and healthy and those kind of things. So this younger generation is more tuned to obviously social media, but I think they're also better communicators than uh, my generation of farmers have been in that way. So I think the future's bright. I'm very hopeful. There's some amazing young people out there that are going to do some amazing things uh, uh, that we can't even think about now. You inspire us. You're a tremendous leader. And we talk about maybe who impacted you as a, a young person. Who were your mentors in life? Well, that's interesting to say. I, I, I feel like I had the, the, the boyhood of a lifetime. I, I grew up in middle Georgia on a diversified row crop farm. My daddy farmed all of his life. My grandfather farmed all of his life. 
my mother was an English teacher for 40 something years there. So I got that, that uh, liberal arts training as well there. With, uh, uh, I, that hanging participles were not allowed in my home. <laughs> but anyway, I think my dad and my mom were my, my structure. There was never a day in my life when I didn't realize that I was loved. You think the power of that in a child is so powerful to realize that. And then as, as we had a dairy farm as well, and then as I saw the veterinarian come out uh, to the dairy farm, I realized that a professional career was what I would like. And then uh, I, that, that I signed up for a, 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 a early commissioning program when I was in veterinary school because Vietnam was boiling. I wanted to do my duty because my friends were being drafted. I went to the Air Force, I practiced veterinary medicine, and then I realized uh, that farm upbringing had too much dirt under my fingernails and, and clay between my toes. So I went back into a career of agribusiness. But all along, there have been people who have been good to me and uh, so helpful, but it really began with my parents and uh, I, I owe them uh, really everything. What didn't I ask you that you wanna leave us with today? Well, again, uh, America's gonna be in great hands. The resiliency of the American farmer, rancher, producer, uh, tree growers, uh, this is a great country, and uh, everything is going to survive. We're going to survive. We're going to continue to lead the world in biotechnology and agricultural production, and the world is going to be better for it because of the American farmer and rancher. Ex-Secretary Sonny Perdue, our heartfelt thank you for your service and definitely for your time here today and, and throughout the last four years. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line or to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Well, next up on the program, some of you might remember a few weeks ago, we conducted a listener survey and asked for feedback about what kind of content you'd like to hear from Fastline Fast Track. One of the common responses we received was market updates. Well, we took that to heart, and beginning this week, we're honored to bring in veteran farm broadcaster Jesse Allen to present a weekly farm market recap. And now, we're proud to bring you his first installment. Well, thank you, Brent, and happy to be a part of the Fast Line Fast Track family and join in the fun here in 2021 to bring you some market coverage here on the show. And man, oh man, I tell you what, uh, the last couple of weeks, it has been a roller coaster ride, mainly just shooting straight up with a rocket on our back throughout this uh, commodity market, especially in soybeans and corn. Even wheat futures have been looking good as well as we move through the last couple of weeks. Now, coming up on Tuesday, we do have that January WASD report up ahead, and a lot of us are focusing on that report to see whether or not demand, supply, whether these numbers change, whether our carryouts change, and if things really come into fruition, kind of like analysts and traders are expecting here just a few days out from the report. I recently talked with Bill Biederman with agmarket.net on an episode of Market Talk last week, and he first shares his thoughts on corn heading into the WASDE report. On corn, you're going to take the carryover stocks to use most likely down to about 10%. I mean, it could be below that, but we figured USDA probably won't go any lower than 10%. So our carryover number estimate is at 
1.497, right around 1,500. Last month, it was 1,700 or 1.7 billion bushels. Now, and there's only been a couple of times in history where you, you've gone to or below a 10% stocks to use. I mean, you're talking about a 50-day supply or a 36-day supply. So this is a very tight situation. It's a lot tighter if you use the numbers that we really think are out there. But, you know, USDA's got a history of saying what they want to say. So I'll just leave it at that. So that's our guess. But the point being is, if you've only got three other years to look at in history and look at the kind of moves we had during those times, we're not there yet. He says the tight supply situation is even more dramatic in soybeans. We went from a 14% stocks to use ratio down to about a 4% stocks to use ratio on this last report, just from August to November. And uh, we've got 175 million bushel carryover. We think that's going to go down to 145. So we think in order to make any demand revisions, which they have to make, they're actually going to have to raise yield a smidge to keep that carryover where it's not panic mode. And that's how we're coming up with 145. But that takes your stocks use ratio down to 3.2%. I can't find another year like that. The last two times we had a 4.5%, we went to $16. I think it was in 05. And then we went to um, $18. So those are the two years that compare with stocks to use. However, looking back at history, Biederman tells us there are some major differences between years comparable to this year. History tells us that there's a major difference between this year and those years, and that is you've got money coming out of governments around the world being disseminated into the hands of the consumer like never done. I mean, it's never happened like this before. So we don't know what that means as far as inflation. We know it means inflation. We don't know what it means on price impact. We know it's bearish the dollar, and we're seeing that, and the dollar should continue to go down. But if you put an inflation factor like 2.4 plus percent on top of those kind of years, uh, the rally is amazing. I mean, the potential is phenomenal. But to say all that, Okay, I could say we're going to $5 corn, $15 beans, but that doesn't mean I need to gamble that it'll get there from a farming perspective. It, it, my farm is a business, right? If I can lock in a half a million dollars profit and keep my upside open by using options, man, I'm doing it. And Peterman says that he doesn't think this impressive rally hire is over with just yet. People are taking profit on these rallies and they're getting opportunities to buy them back on 15 to 25 cent breaks, sometimes within minutes. A lot of volatility typically means it's it's good for us uh, in agriculture. And I don't think that's over with. I think the money flow is just really starting. Again, Bill Biederman is with agmarket.net. On the cattle and hog markets, really just kind of trading a sideways range right now. Hog futures, having a tough time pushing above $72. That seems to be a brick wall of resistance right now. Meantime, cattle, just kind of a sideways trade like it has been. It's been getting pretty tough to find bids over the 112 mark. We'll have to see where cattle and hogs move in the next week. Again, happy to be part of the Fast Line Fast Track family, bringing you market updates from the Market Talk desk in Nashville. I'm Jesse Allen.
Well, you can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. You can also find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. He also appears on the American Ag Network, and you can hear him host Your Ag Today weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio Channel 147. Well, next up on Fast Sign Fast Track, it's time for another installment of Bushels and Scents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax. Don't forget, you can check out all his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Scents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. You do not use anti-seize compound on wheel studs. You begin to plant and corn stubble pierces one of the planter tires. The lugs will not come off and you break three out of the five studs. Going for new studs and installing them costs you one complete day. The next day it rains. This puts you more than two days past the optimal planting window. University data projects a 0.56% yield loss per day past the optimal date. Based on 2,000 acres, a one-half percent yield drag on 170 bushel per acre corn is a loss of $6,664 or 1,904 bushels because you did not use anti-seize. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. And don't forget, Ray Bohax has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we head on over to the musical side of the house where our special guest is a gifted singer and songwriter out of Arkansas who has some new music to share and quite a tale to tell. Sean Harrison, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. How have you been? Thank you so much, Brent. I'm doing great and it's good to see you and I hope you're doing well. Well, you're yet another in a long line of artists we've had here on the show who's tried to navigate an album release in the middle of the pandemic and you've put out a beauty in Halfway from Nashville, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But before we do, let's kick things off with a song from Sean Harrison. This is Paydays on Fast Line Fast Track. I've got two dollars in change and 33 cents. You see my folding money went with my honey and I haven't seen them since. I'm out of cigarettes and I'm down to my last few swallows of old Kentucky. But tomorrow's payday And that's when I get lucky Because my woman Only loves me on paydays I've got to hurry to the bank with my check I can't afford to be waylaid A big wad of dough in my front left it puts a sparkle in her eye and she's ready to rock it my woman only loves me on paydays now i can't argue that she only gives it up bi-weekly because some good buddies of mine well she cut them off completely i get a little behind Ever so often And I visit that old payday lender 
There's no credit at home She only goes cash tender Because my woman Only loves me on paydays I've got to hurry to the bank with my check I can't afford to be waylaid A big wad of dough in my front left pocket Puts a sparkle in her eye And she's ready to rock it My woman only loves me on paydays Now I can always hope for something to cheer Around the end of the fiscal year If things point up with the quarterly notice The holiday check gives me a big old bonus My woman only loves me on paydays I've got to hurry to the bank with my check I can't afford to be waylaid Oh no I can't A big wad of dough in my front left pocket Puts the sparkle in her eye And she's ready to rock it My woman only loves me on paydays Paydays on paydays Ah, good stuff there. Tale as old as time. <laughs> there you go. There's paydays. And if I remember correctly, reading back to your bio, that kind of goes back to a song that was probably the first song you ever wrote when you were five years old about not having any money, huh? <laughs> I can't, I can't believe you found that some obscure fact somewhere. But yeah, uh, my my dad, who played a little guitar and sang folk songs, uh, taught me a few chords when I was five, and. Uh, since he made up stories, I decided I would make up stories too. So I wrote my first song, probably about being a poor boy or some nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but it was coming from a true place, though. <clears throat> yeah. So your beginnings as an artist and somebody fascinated with songwriting come from a really interesting place. You were born in Nashville, but mostly raised in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Tell us a bit about your background growing up there in Arkansas and some of the exposure you had, all <laughs> types of creative folks. Um. We came to Fayetteville in, in the 60s when I was just a little kid, and it's uh, it's in the Ozark foothills of uh, the northwest part of Arkansas. It's very scenic. It's beautiful here, and it's the home of the University of Arkansas, which is why we came here. My dad founded a creative writing program here. He was a, a book author and screenplay writer uh, and professor of creative writing for many years with a great reputation. And so I grew up in a literary home because of him and around all these writing students and other visiting authors and um, just a very uh, sort of um, creative environment. And I, I felt like even as a kid that not that any of the talent got passed along in the DNA, um, but it just the permission rubbed off on me to sort of, you know, write some songs and, and uh, felt like it was, uh, I wasn't all that musically inclined, but I loved doing it. And uh, so I just started writing songs even when I was a little kid. And uh, I haven't, I haven't worked hard at it all my life, uh, but I've always done it on one level or another, uh, even since I was a little bitty kid. So tell me if you could here, if I can 
get this up about the this oh, little bitty kid with his washburn there. That's uh, I was probably 11 years old in that photo. Um, and that is my uh, 1890s era washburn parlor guitar. Wow, and uh, another writer gave that guitar to my dad. Uh, because he had given away our guitar to uh, Miller Williams' daughter, uh, Cindy Williams, better known now as Lucinda Williams. And uh, so that's part of the creative community I grew up around uh, was the poet Miller Williams and his daughter, Lucinda. And, you know, I was younger, but I hung around and listened to her and others play Bob Dylan songs and uh, the Mamas and the Papas and Peter, Paul and Mary, good stuff from the late 60s and 70s. And um, I just loved all that stuff. And a, a little bit later when I was playing full time in Texas and was home for a holiday or something, and Lucinda was also home, I think this was about the time she put her first record out or one of the first ones, Happy Woman Blues. And she... Uh, we were both, she asked me to kind of sit in with her at a show she was doing at a place in little old downtown Fayetteville here. So, um, that, that was a lot of fun to do. And then, uh, you know, I went back to Texas and I don't know where she went. She might've been in Louisiana at that time, but it's before she hit it big and became the, the godmother of Americana music. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I cherish those memories and those experiences. Are you talking about your your father, William Harrison? He was a novelist and a screenwriter, best known for the movie Rollerball, which first came out in 1975 with James Caan and then redone in 2002 with Chris Klein, L.O. Right. and Rebecca Romaine. <clears throat> and, and that was an adaption of a short story, Rollerball Murder, which first appeared in Esquire magazine in 1973. Yeah, yeah. Good research there, Brent. And that is perhaps... He maybe only did one other science fiction type of story, a short story called The Makeup Man. And this was back and The Makeup Man was uh, in the same uh, book of short stories. And it was futuristic in that it predicted that people would tattoo their face and do piercings and even have surgery done to change their ear or the shape of their nose. Just all this weird stuff would be in the future. And that's kind of come to pass just as much as the foundation uh, foundational elements of rollerball uh, have come to pass with, you know, corporate overrule and uh, kind of too much corporate power in the government and our personal lives and everything else. That was kind of the underlying message of rollerball, but everybody kind of got stuck mostly on the, the game and the violence and, and all that, which is to be expected that that idea came to him after, he went to an Arkansas Razorbacks basketball game and a fight broke out. And he and he and some other writers and buddies uh, having a few beers after that game talked about how violent sports are becoming. And, and Dad just kind of ran with it and took it further and turned it into a futuristic game where violence is the point. Um, so, yeah, uh, I miss my dad. He was a really good guy and a good influence on me. And he really got you started uh, in <laughs> not only in science fiction, but also just in, in reading and in culture and, and a lot of things that have helped you along the way. That's that's true. I was expected to read a lot. And he, you know, he recommended the, the first, you know, true great books that I read when I was a young teenager. And it all kind of, you know, pulled me in the direction I go. I, 
uh, for me, uh, the, the words that I write and sing are, uh, well, they better be more important than my singing voice or my guitar playing. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I've had um, some nice reviews on my debut album, Halfway from Nashville, and some flattering things said, but my favorite uh, review <laughs> is probably the way I would have written it myself. It says right at the top of the story, it says, well, Sean Harrison is not a very talented singer. <laughs> um, his music's kind of unremarkable and his style is cautiously uh, traditional. <laughs> and I just love that because it's, it's true. It went on from there to say that it, the album does has, have merit because the songs hold up on their own. But yeah, you know, I never thought I should have made a record in the first place because uh, I felt like I had a weird voice and uh, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm, uh, I'm not a hot guitar player or anything like that. So for me, um, it was other songwriters who said, you really, you need to make this record because uh, you, maybe you don't like your voice, but you deliver the song the way it needs to be delivered. And nobody else can do that. Even Chris Young and all these great voices of country radio, they can't express them the way they need to be expressed. So make your record, Sean. Um, so I, I kind of, after enough people said that, that's what I decided to do. Well, I'm glad you listened to that advice because I think that's uh, that that's very true. You know, there's there's so many different vocal stylings out there, and that's what makes the world go around. And and there's something out there for everybody. Right. I, I just need to remember the words to my own damn songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, you uh, you know, you had that uh, fascinating uh, sphere of influence growing up, but it still seems like you developed a bit of wanderlust uh, hitting the road for Europe to explore. What was that like? Well, I did that with family and I was a teenager. I've done it since, but when <laughs> I did my busking, I was a 15 and 16 year old kid living in London part of the time, uh, visiting Paris, visiting some of the other great cities uh, because my family always traveled. And I lived a couple of years over in Europe and uh, in our travels. Um, and I carried this forth when I came back to the States and traveled here as well as a, as a young adult and, and older adult. Anywhere I uh, wound up, I would want to um, drop my bags in the hotel, unpack a guitar and go down to the sidewalk. Or in the case of London and Paris, go down into the underground because in those tunnels you have this nice echo as if you're in the shower and uh, you just sound good down in those echo tunnels. And, um, you know, I'd make a few Bob or a, a, a few uh, Lira or whatever the currency was at the time. It was before euros. Um, and um, <clears throat> I had one of those uh, metal holders for a harmonica because, you know, I wanted to be Bob Dylan and um, just played my songs down there or out on the sidewalk and always enjoyed that. Um, I sang a lot of Bob Dylan and uh, some John Prine and some old stuff like from uh, uh, the Beatles and Peter, Paul and Mary from the folk scene, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Cat Stevens. I liked a lot of that stuff. Uh, so, so, you know, that's what I did. 
And how, how was that received by those crowds that were passing by at the time? Oh, gosh. I I don't really remember, but sometimes people would stop and listen and then pull something out and throw it in the guitar case. And a lot of people would sneer or make a snide remark, but you, you just learn how to let that roll off. You uh-huh. know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, it, it's just like playing a gig in a small club nowadays. People your background music to most people and they're going to talk and laugh and order beers loudly. And, and, and a few people listen and, you know, you know that a few people actually listen and, and, um, and so that's who you're there for. Uh, Uh You just have to sort of uh, get into your bubble and do your thing and, and um, hope that a few people hear it and appreciate it. So a little bit later on, you came back to the States and you spent some time in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. How, how did you end up there and, and how did, did that whole scene influence your work? I, I went to college down in Denton. Uh, now it's called um, uh, North Texas University. Back then it was North Texas State University or maybe it's University of North Texas, UNT now. I don't know, but it's in Denton and it was a cool school and had a music scene. And uh, so all that was going on. And I wasn't a very good student at the time. I also started drinking. The drinking age was 18 in Texas. And I um, I took to it and uh, a little too much. Um, but uh, long story short, I um, quit before I finished school and joined a country band and played uh, a couple of years, a lot of shows, full-time playing including the main stage at the Kerrville Folk Festival, which, you know, nowadays, apparently you, you can claim that as a as a great accomplishment in life. I, I didn't know it at the time. I was just a hired gun playing guitar or bass for this band. And um, uh, had a chance to meet and even uh, be on stage with some great Texas legends uh, like Kenneth Threadgill and Steve Fromholtz and uh, B.J. Stevenson, um, uh, and so uh, I, I enjoyed all that, um, but I sort of frittered it away over time and uh, went back to school and did something else for a living uh, for a, a long time and, and didn't write a song for a long time, although I played in some bands, um, uh, but I would write a song every once in a while, and uh, about Four years ago, four or five years ago, I decided I really wanted to get back to songwriting more and and playing some more. And uh, I didn't want to play a bunch of cover songs at a at a bar and just be the background noise for people talking. I I wanted to um, focus on uh, the original songs that I felt. I don't know. I feel like songs are out there and they call on me that they want to be written. And so, you know, I've sort of got this responsibility, this idea pops in from wherever it comes from. And I'm like, Oh gosh, well, that's, that's a worthy idea. I probably need to work on it. I mean, now it's my responsibility. So uh, that's kind of how I approach it. There are songs that want to be written and they, they sort of pick me more than I pick them, if you will. And, uh, Mm -hmm. So that's the way I approach it. Well, before we go on, how about we hear one more from Sean Harrison? This is Gravel and Dirt on Fast Line Fast Track. 
that I survived my wild youth And it won't matter when I die And you'd have seen it that way too If like me you grew up on the corner of gravel and dirt You'd have kept things in perspective and not get too reflective And just move on from the corner of gravel and dirt That town had only one ways and dead ends Blind curves, near misses, and bad breaks Journeys with no ending only beginnings to get away I busted through a barricade and you'd have done it that way too if like me you grew up on that corner of gravel and dirt you'd have made your mama weep when you finally made that leap and just moved on from that corner of gravel and dirt Now I keep moving just as far as I can The further I go, the more I learn who I am I've felt the three kinds of pain and seen the four kinds of rain And I've changed a hundred ways in my life but I never changed my name And you might feel that way too mm -hmm. If like me You grew up on that Corner of gravel and dirt You'd have found your way to steer Along the road that brought you here A long, long ways from the Corner of gravel and dirt I know you were talking a bit earlier about musical influences, and it seems like you have always kind of tended to gravitate to, toward the more of those cerebral songwriters. You know, you mentioned Bob Dylan and the Beatles and John Prine. And I know you'd mentioned in your bio some early Haggard and Ry Cooter and Mark Knopfler, among others. Yeah. Yeah. And taking a listen to the song we'll hear here in a bit, halfway from Nashville, I feel like I sensed a little bit of Christofferson in there as well. Could be, yeah. It's it's a ballad. It's in three four time, and I just I love the feel of that traditional country waltz. Of those folks that we talked about, what what is it about their music or their message that that has always kind of resonated with you? Oh wow, uh, probably different ones for different reasons. But mm -hmm. I am big on authenticity, and I need um, I need to I need the words to to sort of have some meaning. Um, and tell a story. Uh, I was raised by a storyteller. I gravitate toward storytellers, and and I and I I like telling a story. Um, so uh, 
authenticity is big and uh, uh, I, I need to be surprised every once in a while with something clever, I think. And that's kind of key to storytelling is you've got to have a series of surprises um, to, I think, hold the audience's attention and lead them from your beginning through the middle and to the end. Uh, little they they can be minor little surprises just this the a, a sort of unusual way to use a word or an unusual expression or you know something crazy happens one of one of the songs from the album that does real well when i do live shows is the last water tower and it's got more than one good surprise in it and um i don't want to spoil it or anything maybe people should go listen to the last water tower or you know, or maybe I'll play it. It's not on the list I had, but but it's the fun one. Um, so anyway, I don't know if I really answered your question, Brent, but um, uh, a literary a literary format for writing lyrics and telling stories, I think. So you know, you had talked about uh, uh, even though you you loved it. Uh, you love playing it. You, you still wound up going off and doing other things and found this one fascinating about your career because you and I kind of tried the same path here. I got my start as well as a newspaper reporter and editor. Wow. So I, I definitely feel that. Uh, and you also, uh, so you went on to be a dishwasher, a construction worker, a <laughs> salesman, a public relations uh, uh, practitioner, for an American Indian tribe, the Quapaw yeah. Nation of Oklahoma, for 15 years. How, how did that go? Recently, out? I did a lot of work for the Quapaw Nation, which is in neighboring Oklahoma and not far from here. And uh, and I loved doing that, and I love the Quapaw Nation and what they do. And it was a a pleasure um, being the guy who managed their uh, public reputation and and did all kinds of. I did lots of stuff for them. Um, and I made a lot of good friends in Quapaw Nation and in the uh, in the the community of Indian country all across the, this nation. So that means a lot to me. And, it, you know, as as you probably know, it, um, as a public relations man, you're only really as good as the organization you're representing. Yeah. And I could never have done better than I did with Quapaw Nation. I just love it. Did you draw a lot of experiences uh, that, that you were able to uh, draw on as far as uh, songwriting? Um, I think I've written bits and pieces of Indian casino type stories <laughs> about <laughs> dealers and cocktail servers. Um, I've, I've got a song that I, I don't even have a demo and I, I couldn't play it for you right now if you asked me to. But it's about a guy who wins the lottery and then goes and blows it in an Indian casino. But he meets the girl and they and they go off and live happily ever after. So it's just a, a simple little story uh, that's um, that has um, state lotteries and Indian casinos kind of built into the into the scenery of it. Um, so uh, other than that, I don't I don't think so. I, I get uh I get these story ideas uh, that just seem to belong in the traditional country music vein. It seems yeah. like every once in a while, kind of bluesy and every once in a while, a little bit of rock, but it all kind of mixes up into that, that grand umbrella we call Americana. Uh -huh. 
Now, I know a lot of the more recent work has been described as kind of self-mocking about, you know, the average guy's troubles and so forth. But uh, is that a, a place you see yourself branching out from or is there just comfortability there? Oh, you know, um, it's comfortable for me to kind of I like to make fun of guys like me. I'm privileged. Um, I grew up privileged and. um and I, I don't know. I just, I think we're all healthy if we can kind of look at ourselves and kind of laugh and make fun of ourselves. Some of my songs, like Paydays, the first song, I mangled it and had to restart. But Paydays is about some schmuck who, you know, doesn't understand or fully understand what the situation is with his, his wife really kind of only loving him up when it's payday. But uh, so I'm making fun of, kind of the, the suckers and the losers is, is how I describe it on my, on my uh, website. I like writing about suckers and losers. Um, there's another one, breathe out. Her name's a very sad song. It's the last song, 12th and last song on the album. And it's, it's really a sad song. If you listen to what it's about, it's about a poor guy who um, she's never going to love him, but he hangs in there. It's kind of a, uh, reversal on on the stereotypical gender story of the woman who runs with wolves and loves the guy who's never going to love her back and leaves her. Well, this is the the guy is the sucker in that one, and uh, I'm looking at my list. Uh, Big decisions is about a guy who has a complete lack of a uh, <laughs> no sense of reality about what his marriage is is like. He thinks he makes the big decisions. I'll just leave it at that. But it's another one of those songs about a sucker and, or a loser. And I um, sometimes claim I specialize in suckers and losers. I, I don't know. I just kind of like it. <laughs> it just is fun for me to write. The blissfully ignorant. Yeah. I love it. So you know, something else you had a chance to do here a few years back, try your hand at producing. And in 2016, we're the producer of Milton Patton's popular self-titled EP, in, which had some success on iTunes in the country chart and also sat near the top of some of the indie uh, country charts as well. What did you learn from that experience? We had a good run. I learned a lot about the the music business down here in the hard scrabble indie uh, facets of it anyway. Uh, Milton asked me to manage him because he liked some of the songs I had written and he trusted me. He wasn't sure who to trust. And by the way, Milton is such a talented vocalist. Look up Milton Patton. Look yeah. at some of his videos. Look at his audition video from America's Got Talent in 2013 or 2014. Oh my gosh. Uh, so talented and such a good young man. Um, he asked me to manage him and I said, well, Milton, I mean, uh, yeah, but as long as you know, I don't know anything about it and we're just going to have to figure this out together as we go along. And he said, yeah, okay. And um, I knew a few people and started having long phone conversations with people in Nashville and reading all the, oh, there's so much, there's a whole universe of, crazy information for indie musicians uh, if you just start googling it and a lot of it is to sort of fleece these people out of their money yeah. uh, it seems like 
it's it can be a really lousy business. So you have to find good people and the honest people and just kind of cluster them around you and ignore all this this universe of nonsense out there and hustling. And uh, it's kind of like getting into a scrum trying to get attention. And uh, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, to be honest with you. But uh, back to Milton, we we made an EP. I wrote or co-wrote most of those songs. Um, I produced it, but not without some good collaborators helping me and some good players pitching in. And we had a pretty good run. I, we were, if I remember right, in 2016, we had the number 163 country album on iTunes. There are lots of charts, lots of different charts. And we were we were about that far from the Billboard chart, which is, that's the real deal. Because I got a phone call one afternoon, and the guy says, this is so-and-so from Billboard uh, uh, Hot Country uh 100 or something and i said wait a minute you, you are bsing me who is this and i almost hung up and, it, and he, so he gave me his name he said look listen look up my name call me back i need to talk to you about this album y'all have got because if sunday goes well or if saturday and sunday if the trend continues you're going to be on the billboard uh charts and i was like holy i can't believe this and I told Milton, I can't believe this. I looked up the guy, called him back, and sure enough, well, long story short, Brent, we did not make it onto the Billboard chart, or I would be, you know, crowing about that. But we, uh, but we did pretty well for a couple of guys on a shoestring budget, and having to figure it out as they went along. And that's mostly because um, Milton had great talent, has great talent. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing right now. But he went off to Nashville to see what he could uh, do, and and that's what he's doing. And I, I wish him all the best. So, is producing something you see more of in your future? Producing me, at least. Um, hmm. And I don't know. It just depends on what comes up. Um, I've I've always thought about that, and it, it's fun to kind of be, you know, the 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 final decider on things or uh, one of the final deciders on it. And um, it's, it's a very creative role, uh, but it's also a kind of administrative role. It's just organizing everybody and getting them in the right place at the right time and uh, making sure the piano's tuned and, and um, just lots of details. It's a detail kind of gig and uh, I enjoy it. And uh, I mostly produced my, um, record halfway from nashville there are other producers on it because i like sharing the credit um and and michael brinson who played almost every stringed instrument you can name on the record uh brought a lot to the table and so he he earned his way into being named uh co-producer paul carabello is a master at the controls uh on the soundboard and with the, the, the digital and analog and mic placement and everything else. Um, he's just a sharp, self-trained young man. He's out of Springfield, Missouri, Paul Carabello. Highly talented. And so, yeah, he, he um, made a lot of decisions and brought a lot of ideas to, to the finished product and uh, had to be named 
co-producer, and Paul was the producer on that Milton Patton EP we were talking about a few minutes ago. So that's how I knew Paul, and that's how I knew I wanted to work with Paul again. So, um, but but I'm the one who paid for everything, and uh, and I'm the one who took all the various ideas and said, okay, let's let's do this one, let's go this way, or let's use this track. I like I like the the I like um I like Michael's uh third version of that solo so let's use that so you know so I kind of produced my own record too but it was a collaborative effort Well before we move on any further you want to share us another one from this album I do From this album Wake Up Dead comes across as a nice um a nice acoustic version because it's, it's almost strictly acoustic even on the record. I'd like to think I'll die in an interesting way. A final effort for some glory to my life. Like falling from a cliff or run over by a train. Or attacked by an outlaw with a knife We only get one chance to make it grand And a man deserves to check out the best that he can But my living days are little more than failure and dread So one morning probably I'll just wake up dead If I know me, I'll just wake up dead Dying is a lonely kind of art A self-portrait splashing blue across my death And if it's unexpected, it may just pour from my heart and Either way I'll say, voila, with my last breath We only get one chance to make it grand And a man deserves to check out the best that he can but my living days are little more than failure and dread. So one morning, probably I'll just wake up dead. Yeah, if I know me, I'll just wake up dead. A handsome corpse is not preferred for me. If you please let me be eaten by wild animals, not beaten by disease. Dying is a lonely kind of art. A self-portrait splashing blue across my death. And if it's unexpected, it may just spill from my heart. Either way, I'll say voila with my last breath. We only get one chance to make it grand. And a man deserves to check out the best that he can. But my living days are little more than failure and dread. So one morning, probably, I'll just wake up dead. Yeah, if I know me, I'll just wake up dead. Uh, good one. And I have to say the way I feel today, that one hits a little too close to home. <laughs> well, it, you can probably hear, I don't know, I, I'm not always this hoarse and weak uh, in my voice, but this dry weather. I probably yeah. should never record during winter or uh, or do shows during winter because uh, 
I, I just get so dry and hoarse. Um, but maybe that's good for some songs like Wake Up Dead. It just, just sounding kind of bedraggled as the message of the song deserves. So I wanted to touch on here. Something that's been near and dear to your heart is volunteerism down there in the Fayetteville, Arkansas area. You and your wife do a regular uh, weekly delivery to your neighborhood food pantry, part of the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank System. And you also volunteer for projects with the Ozark Literary Council, which is a regional nonprofit that helps new citizens and non-nationals learn ESL. We have both uh, done uh, work for um, Ozark Literacy, and that kind of fits with what we were talking about in in my own background earlier. Uh, and yeah, feeding the hungry, that's really dear to my heart. And I, I did a lot of that when I did public relations work for the Quapaw Nation um, we, uh, we put a lot of food in the food banks and food pantries because, uh, food insecurity is, a a serious problem and now more than ever. So, uh, my wife, Clarice and I, uh, do a weekly trip to fill up, uh, one of the food pantries here on our own neighborhood. And, um, I always feel good about that. I love it. And if you're a uh, farmer or rancher down there in that uh, Arkansas area and, and you listen to this, uh, I would hope that uh, you would jump on board with that mission here and, and help these guys out and anywhere across the country. It's needed everywhere Absolutely. right now. Yeah. Absolutely a, a, a tough problem uh, and, and one we're going to keep beating the drum for. I tell you what, what haven't you done in this career that you'd like to do? Any passion projects that you've always wanted to do or anybody that you've always wanted to work with but haven't had that opportunity yet? Man, I don't know. I I don't have a real knack for co-writing, but co-writing is really trendy and uh um and in Nashville it's it's like practically demanded. Um and so I've tried my hand at a little co-writing with other songwriters but I've always been such a loner and uh, I'm, I'm not sure it, it's, it's something I, I feel like I should apply myself and, and check out a little bit more. Um, I want to, I'm working on songs for my next album. Um, I've been promoting halfway from Nashville, but I keep hearing my uh, father's words in my head. He would say, forget what you've already done, move on to the next project. And so I'm trying to heed that as well, or at least balance it, because you got to promote a little bit or nobody's ever going to hear what you make, no matter how good it is. Um, but uh, I just want to keep moving forward. I'm excited about songs for uh, my second album, which are uh, most of the way ready. So um, it would help if I could sell <laughs> sell some of the first album so I could afford to make a second one. But uh, it's the cold hard facts of this business. Nobody buys music really anymore. The only reason to buy music um, is to support the musician so they can uh, continue uh, making music. Uh, because the fact is, anybody can go hear my record for free. Go to YouTube. Go to Spotify. Um, Go to any number of uh, places, obscure little websites where people downloaded it as soon as it came out and put it up for sale on their own website. You can go hear it for free. So people just aren't used to uh, paying for music anymore. But musicians like me need need to somehow, you know, 
it'd be nice to recover the cost of that album. I'd put it right into making the second one. Yeah. Uh, but that's easier said than done. The music business is tough these days. Well, in the vein of promoting here, the new album Halfway from Nashville is out. Tell me about the title and tell me about the inspiration behind it. Well, I was born in Nashville. And so the phrase halfway from Nashville popped into my head. I was either out on a walk uh, where walking allows these things to pop into my head, or it was one of those 3 a.m. walks to the to the restroom in the middle of the night um, and things pop into my head. But just the, the phrase halfway from Nashville without having any context or any idea what it means popped into my head and I wrote it down. And I, I realized looking at it the next day, well, it's because I'm, if, if I can get the benefit of the doubt and, and y'all call me middle-aged, um, I'm a little past that actually. Uh, but if I'm middle-aged, then I am halfway from Nashville since that's my birthplace. So it's not a geographical spot on a map or anything. It's a timeline in the life, in my life. Not that the song is autobiographical, but... It's hard for me to argue that it's not since it's about a down and out songwriter who's trying to figure things out and he turns to his country music heroes and their songs to try to find answers to his own sort of messed up half-life. So that's where Halfway from Nashville comes. Um, the cover, the cover's an interesting story. That's a that's a painting by Sir Sidney Nolan, an Australian, and it's called Ned Kelly, 1946. And uh, I just, I liked the painting so much when I saw it that I started writing to the um, National Gallery of Australia to ask them if I could have permission to use Ned Kelly, 1946, as the art for my album cover. And they referred me to the Sidney Nolan trust or foundation and i wrote them letters but then i then i discovered well it's public domain i can use it uh i just have to say somewhere in here that no i no uh copyright infringement is intended so it's just a cool photo of a, a legendary australian um outlaw kind of the jesse james of uh australia was ned kelly and that that square head is because he had a a, a tubular uh, steel encasement that he cut out for the eyes and he, he built his own helmet so that he could go on his raids and be protected by a suit of armor built out of old farm machinery and stuff. So for all you ag people, that maybe that has some interest. Ned Kelly used old farm equipment to build a suit of armor, homemade suit of armor to do his raids. But, um, I just liked the painting. And uh, and thought it kind of um, looked like a journey through a barren landscape. And that kind of tells the story of my life, too. All my self-made troubles in my life. Um, this privileged guy who threw up his own roadblocks every chance he got. And so here I am trying to figure it all out. So anyway, that's what the song is about. And that's what the the album got titled because I was born in Nashville.
Well, as we close things out this week, let's hear the title track from Sean Harrison's latest project. This is Halfway from Nashville on Fast Line, Fast Track. At this point in my life, halfway from Nashville, I'm searching for clues to what it's all about. I'm divided and conquered, lack means and lack will. Hoping old country songs help me figure it out. Merle says I just need to get through December. Dylan's answers in the wind they do blow. Mr. Cash had so many songs I can't remember. But he's been everywhere, man, so he ought to know. Who will sing me the song that makes a connection? Three chords and a chorus with a sense of direction. If not Haggard or Dylan, then by God, Johnny Cash will. Tell me where the hell am I now, halfway from Nashville? All the songs that I write are about schmucks and losers. I guess autobiography is my chosen form. From grifters to wife thieves and other abusers, I've scripted myself to be lost and forlorn. So who will sing me the song that makes a connection? Three chords and a chorus with a sense of direction. If not Haggard or Dylan, then by God, Johnny Cash will. Tell me where the hell am I now, halfway from Nashville? They say nobody's from here, they're from everywhere else. An old gypsy woman said my plan would succeed. Now it's just a plan that I need. So who will sing me the song that makes a connection? Three chords and a chorus with a sense of direction. If not Haggard or Dylan, then by God. Johnny Cash will Tell me where The hell am I now Halfway from Nashville Where the hell am I now Halfway from Nashville And that song pretty much says it all. Thank you, Brent. That's that's uh, Americana gold right there is what that is. I appreciate that. So maybe all these uh, folks can come uh, come check me out at SeanHarrisonSongs.com and Sean Harrison Songs on Facebook. I'd love to ma- meet you and make new friends. 
Yeah, most definitely. Make sure you go check out that uh, website and the socials. And Sean, I want to thank you so much for helping me close out 2020 here on Fast Sign Fast Track. You're a delight to visit with, man. And hope you come back again and share more of your thoughts and more of this wonderful music with us. And certainly anytime you got new music to share, you've always got a home here to share it. Brent, I appreciate that. And this has been really fun, really good. I wish you the best. I hope you a speedy recovery. And a, and a really great 2021. I hope it's better for all of us in 2021. And we want to thank you so much for joining us this week. And we want to say a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. And are you in the market for snow removal equipment, a new tractor, perhaps a new planter? If so, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the iron average powered by iron solutions again that's fastline.com and while you're on the website be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region no need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack the fastline catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country and don't forget to subscribe to the fastline fast track podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, Audible, and Radio.com. And be sure to hit us up on all those socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com.